My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Beck, Jax Lynx, and Cara Tierney. Beck Jax Lynx has worked mostly as a social worker, predominantly in mainstream social service organizations. They have long known, however, from their own experiences and from those of many people that they have worked with, that the dominant model for how mainstream institutions deal with transgender, two-spirit, and gender-diverse people was and is seriously flawed. Even the most supportive parents of gender nonconforming kids are likely to seek support either directly from medical professionals or from social workers who pass them along to medical professionals. Under this model, based as it is in social work and medical practice, gender nonconforming youth are medicalized, pathologized, surveilled, assessed, and regulated according to standards that trans and gender diverse people themselves have played little or no role in shaping. Even though the days of trying to force young people into the gender they were assigned at birth is largely past, they are still treated in one way or another as problems to be solved rather than as selves to be celebrated. And Jax Lynx knew that they needed to find ways to use their skills to make things better for trans and gender diverse youth. Cara Tierney has been a working artist for a decade. They're also doing a PhD in an interdisciplinary program at Carleton University in Ottawa doing work related to art, education, and trans studies, and they're an instructor in the history and theory of art at University of Ottawa. Despite their own journey around sexuality and gender, facilitated in large part by engagement with art, and their many years of reading queer and trans scholarly work, Tierney felt the need to develop a better sense of how these issues are playing out on the ground among trans and gender diverse youth and their families, and to be part of working towards something better. Jax Lynx and Tierney met at just the right moment. Jax Lynx was just leaving their job as a social worker, and Tierney was just starting graduate school. The two of them hit it off, and pretty soon they began working together. Given their respective skill sets, they predominantly do educational work. This work is not generally with trans, two-spirit, and gender-diverse youth themselves, however. Partly that's because youth often have a pretty solid instinctive grasp of gender politics already, even when they don't yet have the language to express it. But mostly, it's because it is the adults and the institutions that have power over the lives of trans and gender-diverse youth that need to be challenged and changed. It is both the leadership and the staff in such organizations that are the focus of most of Jax Lynx and Tierney's educational work. The nature of their workshops varies with the context, but in general it is their goal to go beyond the kind of tokenistic education that many organizations do just to be able to check off a box on a diversity checklist. In their experience, a key barrier to organizations doing the work to become more welcoming places for staff and for patients or clients who are trans or gender diverse is the discomforts, the fears, and the deep-down gut-level prejudices that a lot of cisgender people, including a lot of liberal-minded and nominally supportive people, have about them. So the first part of their workshops involves drawing out those intense feelings from participants in order to process them and begin to work through them. 
Once that hard emotional work is done, or at least well started, then they can begin the relatively easier work of identifying ways the organization can become more welcoming, which often involves relatively minor changes in policies, forms, bureaucracies, language, washrooms, and so on. A key feature of Jack's Links and Tierney's work is that they focus their energies on rural and suburban areas which are often underserved when it comes to the needs of trans and gender diverse people. They caution, however, that while the work is definitely necessary in those places, it is a mistake to assume that things are any worse there for trans and gender diverse people than they are in big cities. In fact, they say, the kinds of fears and organizational barriers that trans and gender diverse people face are much the same everywhere, and doing this work in small towns is not really much different than doing it in a major metropolitan center. I speak with Jacks Links and Tierney about the barriers that trans and gender diverse people face, about their educational work in rural and suburban areas in eastern Ontario, and about their broader vision for the kinds of social change that they are working towards. My name is Beck Jack Links, and I use the pronouns they, them, there. I am the owner and director of a small independent business called Building Through Education and Community Knowledge. The roots of that small organization is so that the information and education is by and for trans, two-spirit, and gender diverse individuals to be the voice and the experts in naming our experience in our lives instead of people who are not trans or two-spirit or gender diverse speaking on behalf of us. I'm also a social worker and an artist. And I'm Kara Tierney, pronoun they, them. I'm first and foremost, I guess, an artist, a visual artist who's always used art as a way to explore and better understand my position in this world and my identity. I'm also a prof at the University of Ottawa, where I teach history and theory of art. And I'm currently a PhD student at Carleton University in an interdisciplinary program where I'm looking at art, education, and trans studies in an attempt to see how art can be used as a way to bridge the gap of information that currently hovers around gender nonconforming people and gender nonconformity more generally. I work a lot with Beck and we deliver a lot of educational workshops. And I'm generally jumping on any opportunity to host and hold space for the conversations on gender that are not happening in society. My own understanding of gender identity and my sexual orientation came to me largely through art. There were no gay-straight alliances in my high school. There was very limited curriculum when it came to sexual education. But I always loved art and studied art. And it was through artists and experiencing artwork that I came to understand who I was and how I was being constructed by the society that I live in. So really, for me, it's about trying to harness those experiences because they were incredibly affirmative, incredibly liberatory. Art has a wonderful way of sometimes capturing experience and identity in sounds and visuals that aren't always linked back to language, which can be quite limiting in many ways. So my experience moving forward really is about trying to distill that really positive experience of identity and make it available to others where I see it not happening. A lot of the work that we're trying to do in rural communities is, again, about creating an access point. The work that I'm doing in my PhD currently, I stop and ask myself, well, where are people learning about gender identity? Where are they figuring this out? Where are they finding it? And the answer that I came up with once I asked myself that question was, 
kind of frightening, to be honest. And the information that people are accessing is really limited and not very expansive and very binary focused. So Beck and I thought, you know what, let's start creating these access points and let's start going to communities that might be less likely to have access to, you know, large art galleries or large creative spaces that are hosting this conversation in a more public manner. This is about trying to create more space, more understanding for youth who are moving through schools that don't understand them and don't work hard enough to remove the barriers for them to be able to move freely and easily through those spaces. I grew up rural. I grew up in rural Manitoba. People in rural communities consistently have this thought pattern that they don't have enough resources or they are comparing themselves to this great work or this great progressiveness of diversity that is within the city spaces. And so in my previous work as a social worker and counselor and community developer, families would travel two, three hours and sometimes stay in hotels to come and meet with me. And my heart always went out to those spaces. And I've always wanted to go back into rural spaces, one, to let them know that they've got it just the way that they are and that really working with what you have is the way to have these conversations. And the conversations about gender, equity, patriarchy, capitalism, racism, oppression aren't specific to the city because the conversations, the words, the language that can be addressed in any space that they are at. So we bring these conversations to libraries, smaller communities, resource centers, and schools when the schools are open to us being in their walls. So I am a social worker, and I have been past tense working in mainstream organizations for the majority of my 15-year career. And at the time that I was meeting Kara, I was leaving and standing up against what the mainstream social work medical model is presenting as the only access point for trans children and youth, but it was where I've always been. So I am leaving and left a career to be a whistleblower to say what is happening in the social work, medical, meaning psychologists, psychiatrists, and doctors and physicians are doing to our children and youth. And Cara was extremely supportive and critical. I was at the outset of my PhD, and Beck's background and experience was so incredibly rich with information that I wanted. And working with Beck was just so appealing to me because they had access to this whole other world that I didn't access. I was living in the arts world as an artist, as an educator. I've always had a healthy practice of reading queer and trans studies, but it's always been kind of in the abstract where it's me in a room with a book. And Beck had been living that reality, working on the ground in the social work world in a way that they understood a very practical side of things that I simply wasn't in contact with, but desperately wanted to know. So the early conversations were really just me asking back a ton of questions about their experiences. <laughs> like, what is happening out there? Where are the youth finding this information? What are the access points for people whose kids are gender fluid or non-normative? So where do people learn about these things? And what would you counterpose to that social work and medical model that you talked about? There is this normalization that has taken place going back, you know, hundreds of years when the medical doctors historically tuned into what they would have considered as a, a deviant being transgender or anything outside of the binary of male and female. They wanted to correct it. 
that isn't so far from where we are now, but our world is so caught up in political correctness that we aren't able to really pinpoint when this is happening. So what has been considered normal or the way to go, which is one, the medical world, and two, has been seriously said by the mainstream media, is that when someone is transgender or gender diverse, that their first stop is the hospital. And that absolutely couldn't be more wrong. And so your question about where is this information coming from, this information is coming from doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists who think that they know how to discuss our bodies, lives, and experiences. And because people have been very quick to say reparative therapy is illegal, anyone who is doing something that was similar to reparative therapy, meaning trying to put you back into the gender that you were deemed on your birth certificate originally, they are now coercing people into being extremely male or extremely female. But nobody who is cisgender and nobody who is just expressing themselves without that space of being questioned on their gender, do they have to go in for medical examinations, medical assessments, and having to prove themselves multiple times over to these quote-unquote experts who are not in our community to be able to be affirmed and validated in, in who they are. So we talk about in our workshops really naming what is happening when someone is coming into a doctor's office or a space like that, that that is not a best practice. These physicians and psychologists are in conferences speaking as experts on gender, but when we are attending those conferences, we know that what they're saying is not true to what the experiences of our community and which is more horrifying is that how they describe transgender, two-spirit, and gender-diverse people is not who we are. And we are not to be medicalized or to have a model that is always articulated about our lives that is a deficit model that we are lesser than. What is becoming a really prevalent trend in terms of how do we try to support children who exhibit gender nonconformity? Well, a trend is to go to gender clinics, which are largely coming out of hospitals. So basically, children who are in, you know, really supportive families that want to support their gender nonconforming children, they're being directed by social services to go to gender clinics at hospitals. And, you know, I go to the hospital when I'm sick. So what are we telling five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds when we start taking them to hospitals simply for being themselves? One of my favorite quotes from Beck is, take them to the mall, you know, go find them the clothes they want to wear. And really, the reason why they're being taken to the hospitals is that this conversation isn't happening anywhere else. Schools are not picking up slack where they should be in terms of talking about human rights and gender identity. Our society has carved up certain behaviors and put them into these two camps, which are limited and immediately erase so many beautiful identities. Another way to answer your question about where are people getting this information? Well, in terms of institutions and organizations, we're seeing another pattern, which is to bring in people to do training on LGBTQIA2S+. And while that is a great step in the right direction, in many ways, it's also quite limited in that people are looking to sort of check a box to say, oh, I've learned this stuff about people out there. I've learned this stuff about a trans community or a queer community. And it's always sort of presented as learning about the other. What Beck and I do whenever we go into an organization or institution is we invite people to learn about themselves and to think about gender more broadly and to bring it back into the context of their own lives and see how the gender binary really limits all of us in the way that we choose and want to move through this world. So tell me about the workshops that you do. Intuitively, youth 
are actually much smarter than we ever give them credit for and have a very keen sense of who they are and what their desires are and what they want for themselves. So really our target audience are, are the adults who hold the power over their lives because it's the adults who are making decisions and who have power to change signs on bathroom doors or to change policy forms within an organization. It's like looking at things in terms of like capitalism and who controls the power. So we have to make sure that we are speaking to executive directors, directors, senior staff, management, anyone who is holding the power to be able to change policy or to be able to adjust the policy to be in line with human rights bills. We specifically try to, as much as possible, speak to executive directors and managers and supervisors separately from their staff teams so that they can be able to say what they need to say and then their staff teams are able to say what they need to say. Frequently, we're brought in because staff teams or organizations are wanting to prepare themselves for the quote-unquote trans person who walks through the door. And so through negotiations, we do accept these contracts, but what actually happens once in the door of the workshop is that we are turning it towards the staff team because if a staff team and an executive system is able to support someone who is transgender, two-spirit, gender diverse, then they are ready to take the steps to be able to welcome whoever comes through the door. But it's about turning to look on the inside. Consistently, and this goes back to the medical model, we've only been thought of as patients. So a transgender person is not someone who is your colleague, your neighbor, or a family member. It is someone who is a patient or a client or marginalized or someone other who is not within society or even participating in spaces. People are saying, well, we want to be able to serve our patient or our client, but never, ever thinking about that someone could be transgender and be a professional and be in these spaces. We do not do tokenistic checkbox diversity workshops. We make them do the work that they need to do if they are able to participate. We ask them to shake off their political correctness, but to dig deep into what are their personal and professional fears and concerns about, one, having someone who is transgender or gender diverse on their staff team, to someone who is transgender, gender diverse, who is going to be a client or a patient accessing their services, and then three, what barriers do they feel that they have or hold that will prevent them from being able to access affirmation of someone who is transgender. We definitely work with the politics and the forms and the information, but we also need to dig deep into what the heck is people's hold up about someone who is transgender, and people tell us. They tell us what their fears are. They tell us what their concerns are. They tell us these scenarios that are fictitious, but that they create in their heads, which prevent them from moving forward about different things. And once we get to the root of what these fears and concerns are, then we can work through the barriers. It's really like doing rooted support work for cis people so that they can move through their confusion about gender. The first thing to do is affirm the fears. So when people do surface these really intensive and sometimes violent fears, we want them to come to the surface. We have to have them come to the surface. Otherwise, we're not working with anything. We're not moving forward. And so when they do, the first thing that we do is we thank people because it is vulnerable. And then we move forward with that because then we know what we're looking at. Then we know what we're working with. And we move through each fear, barrier, concern one by one. It's a questioning strategy. The fear will come up and then we'll probe that fear. We'll ask, well, where does that come from? Why do we have that fear? And what's at the root of that fear? Not surprisingly, what's at the root of that fear isn't actually trans identities. It's not trans people. What's at the root of that fear more often than not is deep-rooted 
misogyny and fear of violence towards women and behaviors, just social behaviors that we are unconsciously and consciously fostering as a society at large. To be specific, one of the major fears to come up about washrooms is that people will not know how to behave in washrooms that are not gender segregated, which, you know, once we start to question, we realize that these fears are a heteronormative. They're all based on a fear of improper man-woman relationships. And then to take that even further, they're often based on misogyny and women being the victims of violence traditionally and contemporaneously. So a lot of the work that we do is, yes, bring up the fear and then question the fear to the point that we can pinpoint the behavior that needs to be corrected and locate it well and far outside of the trans community as something that we all need to be responsible of as a society, not just a burden that's being shouldered by trans community. So once you've done that emotional work with people and you turn the attention to changes in policy and practices to make organizations more open and less hostile to trans and gender diverse people, what kinds of changes do you generally come up with? I think it's probably a lot less than they would anticipate themselves. Once you get beyond that initial fear, the questioning and the changes are actually really quite logical and simple. So when we're looking at forms, we think, okay, anytime that the form presents a question where gender becomes an issue, we ask, well, why do we need to know that answer? What is it about gender that is going to enrich the experience of the service being provided? How is gender being taken into account? Why is that information actually important? Because more often than not, the answer comes back that it's actually not important at all. Like a dentist does not need to know your gender in order to work on your teeth. You do not need to have a gender to take a book out of the library, right? So certainly the types of changes that need to be made are with regards to forms, policy, architectural and iconographic inclusion, for instance, you know, signage on bathroom doors. And now with the federal and provincial protections, trans people have the right to have equal access to bathroom spaces. So that means if you're going to maintain having segregated bathrooms, then you also have to have equal number of access points for non-binary individuals. And that means having an all-gender or neutral washroom. And then the last major change being asked is just sort of behavior, behavior and linguistics. What's specific about doing this work in rural and suburban areas versus urban areas? And what's pretty much the same? The thing is, it's not different. And this is one of our favorite things that we get to tell the rural communities that it's no different from being in the city. Everyone across the board is coming up with consistently five or six regular themes that are the fears, concerns, and blocks for them in their organization to be able to move forward to support either a staff person or someone who is accessing their services. It is on repeat, very similar across the board. And so that's why we can go in with so much confidence. We can go in and we can talk about policies, Bill C-16, names, pronouns, washrooms, forever, and people still won't tune into the change. But we have to pair that deeply with getting them to talk about what their fears are of transgender people. It's the phobia, the deep-rooted phobia of our existence and our being. What kinds of changes in systems and laws and regulations do you think are needed more broadly to make more space for trans and two-spirit and gender-diverse people to thrive? I'm going to give you the most radical answer I could possibly give you to this question. I'd love to see doctors stop assigning gender to infants when they are born because that is a system that is not proven to work and it fails us continually. 
So that's a really radical answer to your question. I don't know that it's necessarily realistic, but sometimes I think in order to get to like the middle ground to where I want to be, I have to propose the furthest thing I can possible. And then we scale it back from there. And all the reading and research that I've done, that's where we take that first wrong step. As soon as you assign gender to a little body, you are predetermining a language that's going to envelop that body. And that language comes loaded with values and meanings and bias, which can translate then into behaviors and attitudes and the way people carry their bodies, the way people's bodies are perceived and treated externally. So that's a very bold and radical answer to your question. I love that. I totally support that happening. I have a great fear in my heart that I'm not going to see that before I die. One thing that I hope that I see before I die is that the assessment process that transgender and gender diverse children, youth, young adults, and adults have to go through, which is the assessing by the doctors in the medical system, you need to have letters from doctors and psychiatrists to affirm who you are, that that becomes completely illegal and needs to be stopped. I haven't found it yet, but I know that there is a correlation between Bill C-16 and taking down the assessment process. People counter that by saying, look, there's no assessment process, then how are we going to get the medical supports that we need? The answer is you get the medical supports you need because you need them, not going through this voyeuristic assessment process. How do you hope that your education work will continue and develop and grow over the coming year? This past winter, we did tours about two hours outside of Ottawa in multiple little towns at library. It was just a very general, general basic 101. Good information, but really the starting point. And we charged next to nothing for it. We are now launching into a professional allyship workshops. Those are a full day that can give more depth for the conversations for medical and health services to have. So what we are doing is we are offering an alternative to the medical, social service, and health systems to be able to take these workshops, and it's really up to them. But in the meantime, going back to that assessment process, the only way to prove that the questions that are so unethical are being asked is when the youth, young adults, and adults speak up to say, these are the things that are happening in the doctor's office. Because we know that they're happening and we all talk about it within communities. So a goal for this year is to be able to bring recordings of those experiences to the public eye and to also write and have things published in ways that are research-based and more from the academic lens. I'm also really eager personally to work with doctors. I think they have a limited access to knowledge, experience, and information. As much as we criticize the medical model, I'm also deeply thankful for medical services that I will benefit from, particularly as I continue to age. I sure hope that we can start to work with doctors to move towards standards of care that are actually standards of care and are not pathologizing othering experiences that continue to hold our community in a stranglehold of mental disorder, which we are not. You have been listening to my interview with Beck, Jax Links, and Cara Tierney about the education work they do related to the needs of trans, two-spirit, and gender-diverse people in rural and suburban Ontario. To learn more about it, go to beckjaxlinks.ca. That's B-E-H-C-J-A-X-L-Y-N-X dot C-A. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.